Go ahead and please open your Bibles to Matthew 27. We resume our study through this gospel after a little gap. Matthew 27, page 1419, if you're using the church Bibles here. Page 1419, Matthew 27. Verses 1 through 10 is a unit uh, which deals with the death of Judas and verses 1 through 5 and then verses 6 through 10 talks about what happened with the money that Judas returned, the money that he got paid for betraying Jesus. Uh, Because there's uh, quite a bit to cover in these verses for this morning, we're only going to be looking at verses 1 through 5 which deal with the death of Judas. Lord willing, next time we'll look at verses 6 through 10, but I'm still going to read the entire passage uh, so you can uh, refresh your mind with these familiar verses, and we'll pray and then uh, look closely at uh, the first five verses. Matthew 27, beginning in verse 1. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate the governor. When Judas, who had been betrayed, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? They replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priests picked up the coins and said, It is against the law to put this into the treasury since it's blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price they set on him by the people of Israel, and they used to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. Let's pray. Lord, even as we sang in that excellent hymn, may it be that our hearts always bless you. Lord, we are created to bless you, to praise you all day long, and to pray without ceasing. How tragic that message was lost to Judas. As we look at the verses that you have in front of us today, help us, Lord, to take the truths that these passages teach very seriously so that we would not end up as Judas ended up. We need your spirit to work these truths in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, of all the deaths that the Bible describes, there is one death that's the tragic of all deaths, and it was the death of Judas. Think for a moment of all the privileges he had. Three plus years living with the Word incarnate, with Jesus himself. He heard Jesus' teachings publicly and privately again and again. Yet, in the end, he ended up losing his soul for all eternity. Now, you and I may not have the exact privileges that 
Judas had in terms of seeing Jesus in flesh and blood and uh, living with him, communing with him day in and day out as he did. But if you've been part of a church, perhaps even all your life or even many years, and you end up in the footsteps of Judas, that will be the most tragic or tragic of all deaths for you personally. How can we make sure we avoid this kind of an ending for us? By paying attention to two warnings these five verses teach. Personally, I'm, I'm confident that if we take these two warnings seriously, not only will our present lives be impacted, but more importantly, our eternal lives will be impacted. So with that in the back of your mind, we're going to look at these five verses first, and then look at the two warnings these verses teach. So follow with me as I read verses 1 and 2 again. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate the governor. See, Jews did not have authority to execute anyone. So Rome did not give them that authority, so they needed to take the case to Rome. And early in the morning was when the Roman courts met from 6 a.m. to 11 a.m. Remember, Jesus was arrested at night. Already in the end of uh, chapter 26, we saw the Jewish courts held this false trial, tried to bring all these false witnesses, and they've, they've concluded he's guilty. But because they cannot put him to death, now they need to take him to Rome. Not physical Rome, but the authorities uh, established by Roman pilots there, the governor between uh, AD 26 and 36 for 10 years, he uh, had that position. So they're taking him there. But once again, we see how unjust it is because even according to the law of the day for the Jewish people, if someone was condemned to die, it has to be at least a two-day trial. They don't follow that because right from the get-go, they don't care about keeping the law. So they rush him to Pilate. But here's the tricky part. Rome didn't care anything about the religious laws. They would only condemn someone to death if it was for some political reasons. So what they do, well Matthew does not tell us that. Luke tells us in his gospel, in Luke 23, they, they say this when they bring him to Pilate. Let me read verses 1 and 2 from Luke 23. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And then notice what they do there. They began to accuse him saying, we have found this man subverting or leading people astray, subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. Two charges they lay against Jesus. And both of those are political charges. Opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be a king. In threat to Caesar, the only in fact, later they would say, we have only Caesar, our king. They knew by bringing up these charges, Pilate's hand would be forced 
to put Jesus to death. So they came up with these false charges. But notice how they take him to Pilate. They bound him. You know, so far Jesus never resisted them. Not in the garden. Not when they physically abused him in Matthew 26. You read, they spat on him. They struck him with their fists. They slapped him. Not an ounce of resistance. Yet, adding insult to the injury, they bind him like a common criminal and drag him to Pilate. You know, when, when you see that, that word um, handed over has echoes of Isaiah 53, like a lamb led to the slaughter. He's being handed over. Here the Jews would hand over Jesus to Rome without realizing the consequences of their act because in AD 70, God would deliver the Jews to these very same Romans for rejecting their Messiah. Rome would come and decimate them about 40 years later. Throughout this, you get the appearance that Jesus is passive, he's a victim, but, you know, Jesus knew all this would happen. And in uh, earlier, uh, he told, this is how it's going to happen in Matthew 20, uh, verse 18 and 19, he says, these Jewish people, they're going to hand me over to the Gentiles and then I'd be flogged and crucified. So Jesus is in full control here. But then Matthew, instead of continuing with what happened to Jesus at the hands of Pilate, he'll pick up that story in verse 11. He diverts his attention to focus on what happened to Judas. Look at verses 3 to the first part of verse 4. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. Now we're not sure what Judas really expected other than Jesus being put to death given the hostility that the Jewish leaders had. But whatever it was, he's, maybe he, he thought by doing this he would force Jesus' hand to displace messianic powers. We don't know. But whatever it was, he is now seen. Jesus being handed over to Pilate, so he knows what this means. That Jesus is going to be put to death. So he's seized with remorse. That word has the idea of a change of mind, a deep sorrow and regret. Comes from the same family of words that talk about repentance. The question was, was Judas' repentance real? We went through a series of seven messages on repentance. So I'm not going to go over that. But on the surface level, Judas's repentance seems a legitimate one. When you think about it, one of the components of true repentance is you need to acknowledge your sin. Judas does that here. I have sinned. He doesn't call it as a mistake. He doesn't put the blame on others. He says, I have sinned. And even explains what that sin is. I have betrayed innocent blood. This man's innocent. My treachery has now caused him to go to the gallows. I have sinned. And not only that, another component of true repentance is what? Restitution, where possible. He returns the money. Again, no one forces his hand. He does it on his own. Yet, despite that confession and restitution, his repentance was not real. Why? Because he failed to acknowledge his own helplessness. 
to be forgiven of his sin and turn to Christ alone who could forgive his sin. To the very end, Judas took matters in his own hands. He is acknowledging. He is making the restitution. And in the end, in despair, he even takes his life as a last desperate act. But never throughout this whole process acknowledge, I cannot have my own sins forgiven by my self-efforts. I need to turn to Jesus. Even the non-profit group Alcoholics Anonymous that helps people overcome addiction to alcohol, they understand these principles. I'm sure you're aware of them. They have a 12-step process. You know what step number one? It is to admit one is powerless over alcohol. I cannot beat this in on my own. And number two, the need to believe in a higher power to give strength to overcome the addiction. I cannot do it on my own. I need a higher power. Judas never did that. Till the very end, I can do it. I sinned. I can do it. I can get forgiveness on my own efforts. And then this principle is same for all of us unless we realize we are prisoners, correction, slaves to sin. We cannot overcome sin on our own unless we understand I cannot do this on my own. I need Jesus Christ. I need, we sang earlier, His blood applied. I need for His blood to be applied to my heart. And that comes when I turn from my own ways and turn to him and say, I cannot do it. I need you. I surrender my life to you. Unless we do that, our repentance is also like Judas's repentance. It's a false repentance. It will lead us to eternal hell. Sadly, Judas doesn't recognize that. He goes for human help. Notice the cruel response of these leaders to Judas' voluntary confession, the last part of verse 4. What is that to us? They replied. That's your responsibility. We don't care. That's your problem. That's what they're saying, in a sense. Here was Judas, on his own, acknowledging his sin, even returning the money, but they, you know, they don't care. Clearly shows they didn't care for justice one bit. They knew Jesus was innocent. They had no fear of God. Nor did they care for what God said, specifically in Exodus 23 verse 7, where God said, Have nothing to do with a false charge and do not put an innocent or honest person to death for I will not acquit the guilty. These were experts in the law. They knew what Moses said. They didn't care. To them, right from the get-go, they needed to get rid of Jesus and Judas was just a tool that came along with an attractive offer. They used him and now they just threw him out. They didn't care God's warning in Malachi 2 about the responsibility of a priest was to proclaim God's instruction, his knowledge to people and in that manner turn people away from their sinful ways and not be a stumbling block to them. They didn't care anything like that. Instead of helping Judas find forgiveness for his sin by pointing 
them to. They're familiar with Old Testament that talks about how a person could find forgiveness with God instead of doing any of that. They just throw him out. Just goes to show. This is how Satan operates. He uses, gives you a false satisfaction and then leaves you with the deep remorse. And if that doesn't lead us back to Christ, it will be an eternal remorse. The thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. That's what Jesus said in John 10 verse 10. That's what Satan does. Sin is appealing in the short term. If not, we wouldn't be doing it. But in the end, it leaves a person with deep remorse. But that's where Jesus picks up a person like that and begins the restoration work. They wash their hands. Later, Pilate would wash their hand, wash his hands. I'm, in this, I'm, I'm not guilty of this man's blood. Judas tried to wash his hands. The leaders tried to wash their hands. Pilate tries to wash their hands. But the only way to be cleansed of our sins is by turning to the Savior. So many times, Jesus, Judas saw and heard Jesus pronounce forgiveness the greatest of sinners so many times and yet he turned to human beings to get his sins forgiven to soothe his guilty conscience how accurate are the words of Jeremiah in Jeremiah 17 5 which says cursed is the one who trusts in man who draws strength from mere flesh and whose heart turns away from the Lord cursed is that person who's relying on human flesh Instead of trusting in the Lord, later he would say, but blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord. So Judas now realizes all he got was cold words of rejection. He sought forgiveness, but all he gets is, it's your problem, not mine. And sometimes we may get that from people when we go seek their forgiveness. That's why we need to keep are thinking clear. Ultimately, we seek forgiveness from the one who alone has the power and the means to forgive us, Jesus Christ. Even now, it wasn't too late for Judas. Even now, he could have, okay, all hope is lost. I tried. Like, you know, sometimes people say, we've tried just about everything. Maybe it's time to pray. <laughs> Judas tried everything so far. So what does he do? Verse 5, four quick actions, Judas. Threw the money, number one. Threw the money to the temple. Left, number two. Then he went away, number three. Hanged himself, number four. Quick actions, one after another. Just like in the Old Testament, Ahitopal hung himself after betraying David, Second Samuel 17, verse 23. Judas here hung himself after betraying Jesus the son of David. Jesus already said in John 13, verse 18, that the one who has broken bread with me has lifted his heel against me. It was a reference to Psalm 41, which talks about David experiencing the hands, betrayal from the hands of Ahithopel. Again, scripture being fulfilled here. In Judas' suicide, again we see another Old Testament 
command being fulfilled. Deuteronomy 27:25. Moses warns, cursed is anyone who accepts a bribe to kill an innocent person. The ultimate cursing is eternal separation from God. Judas again experiences that. That ultimate cursing betraying the innocent lamb sent by God as he died unrepentant. Let me clarify a, a small uh, issue that sometimes people uh, bring up. There's only two accounts in the New Testament of Judas's death. One is here in Matthew and the other one is Luke giving us that record in Acts 1 verse 18. In Acts 1 verse 18, this is what Luke tells us about what happened. With the payment Judas received for his wickedness, he bought a field, there he fell headlong, his body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. What we need to understand is this. Matthew talks about the manner of Judas' death. It was by hanging. Luke talks about what happened after Judas has died. After Judas died, they take the money, they buy a field. So in a sense, it was Judas' money. That's what Luke is referring to. And then he talks about he fell headlong, his body burst open, all his intestine spilled, up, spilled out. It was common those days for people to commit suicide by hanging on a cliff, hanging on a tree by a cliff. So very likely the branch broke, he fell down and after a while, you know, when the body decomposes, crashes into the rocks and intestine spilled out. So it's not really a contradiction. Both writers giving a different side of Judas is uh, hanging. But the bottom line is this. Judas' life ended in a tragic and horrific manner. That's the main thing we need to focus on. Remember, Jesus did warn Judas just that previous night in Matthew 26 verse 24. Woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Judas' physical death here was just the beginning of his never-ending life of pain and sorrow. What a tragedy. The tragedy of all tragedies that we read in the scriptures. And then from there Matthew moves on to talk about what the leaders did with Judas' money. Again, another passage loaded with a lot of Old Testament references. We'll look at that. Lord willing, next time. But as I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, in, in these five verses, I see two very serious warnings. Very serious warnings. Warnings so severe that for about a couple of weeks, uh, I've been praying, not just for myself, it starts with me, but also for this entire congregation that the Holy Spirit will impress these warnings deep into our hearts so that we will respond in a right way, in a way that would not only impact our present lives or continue impacting our present lives, but more importantly, our eternal lives as well. These warnings really apply specifically for those who have been coming to church for a long time. But also for those who are seeking. Also for those who are seeking, but predominantly, this focus on churchgoers, people who've even been baptized, who, who are even serving in ministry. Someone like myself. Very serious warning. So here's warning number one. 
A person can appear to be close to Jesus, but end up being far from him for all eternity. A person can appear to be close to Jesus, but end up being far from him for all eternity. If if you create that list, there's no question in my mind, Judas heads up that list. His name was Judas, from the root word Judah, which means praise. Yet he ended up living a life far from praising God, but ended up serving the devil by selling out the Son of God, the Messiah himself. Again, think about the privileges he had. Three plus years. Because when you follow a religious leader that in those times, rabbi. You just don't go to school and come back home. You live with them. You eat with them. You observe them. Your life revolves around being with this person and what a person he had. Just Jesus' public preaching that's, or whatever is recorded in scriptures, when we hear those words, it works so deeply in our hearts. This man heard Jesus on and off the record, so to speak, 24-7. He saw his life. This is grace in physical bodily form. He heard everything. He saw Jesus display a miracle after a miracle. And not only that, this is the important thing. He was among the twelve to whom Jesus gave the power To heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 8. Meaning, along with the leaven, he also did astounding miracles, including exercising great power over demons. Shows that even doing miracles doesn't mean one is a true believer. He will be among that group in Matthew 7 verse 22, that would say, Lord, Lord. Because those are church goers. Lord, Lord. Did we not prophesy in your name? Judas did that. And in your name, drive out demons? Judas did that. In Jesus' name. And in your name, perform many miracles. He would be one who would cry. But he would also be one among those to whom Jesus would firmly and finally reply, I never knew you meaning I never had a saving relationship with you, away from me, you evildoers. You see, all that Judas had was a superficial relationship with Jesus. That's all. He just played the part of being a believer, but he was never born again in his heart. Never had the blood of Jesus applied in his heart, so to speak. He put on a show Show to others that he was a man of God. But in all reality, he had sold his soul to the devil. It was only a matter of time before he would be exposed for his false faith. I tell you, Judah stands as a warning to those who come to church day in and day out. There's a vast difference between genuinely being united with Christ by faith and merely pretending to be attached to him. There's a massive gap between giving the appearance of godliness and being godly. 
You know, often we hear about kids growing up in Christian homes, attending church faithfully, but as they get older, they leave the faith. Why is this so common? One writer by the name of Tom Bissett, it's an old book titled, Why Christian Kids Leave the Faith. He gives four reasons for this being so common. Reason number one, people leave because they have troubling, unanswered questions about their faith. Reason number two, people leave because their faith isn't working for them. Just giving them the results that they, not giving them the results that they wanted. Reason number three, people leave because other things in life become more important than their faith. A career, an education, whatever it might be. Glamour of the world. Reason number four, people leave because they never personally owned their faith. And in the rest of the book, he goes and he explains on all these things, trying to help parents and others how to avoid that when they're bringing up their children. Ultimately, you know, salvation is of the Lord. Uh, but it's, it's a helpful... Uh, he, he tries to give some help. But as I was reflecting on these four reasons, it's about the same four reasons for adults too. I'm going to try Jesus. Persecution comes because of the word, Mark tells us. Fall away. Or the deceitfulness of wealth. That's the third seed, Right? Among the thorns, chokes it, becomes unfruitful. For the most part, that's why either people who kind of made a superficial acknowledgement or a, some kind of a profession either totally leave or just continue playing this game. They feel some level of comfort, I guess, within the church community. But they deceive themselves. That's why Jesus constantly warned his hearers about the dangers of following him for all the wrong reasons. He knows more than anyone else that the heart is deceitful and it can give a person a false assurance that they are on the road to heaven while they really are on the road to hell. How right are the words of John Bunyan in his Pilgrim's Progress that allegory that there is a way to hell even from the gates of heaven. There is a way to hell even from the gates of heaven. It can appear to be so close to heaven but really be hell bound. What about you? What about you? Are you really on the road to heaven or hell? It's not something for me to answer. I got to answer that for myself as I pose this question to my own soul. Are you genuinely a follower of Jesus or just pretending to be one? Do you rejoice more in the gifts Jesus gives or in Jesus himself? Now Luke tells us in Luke 10 that one time in Jesus' ministry, he sent 72 disciples to preach the gospel and perform miracles. And he describes the reaction of these 72 as they come back completing his mission in verse 17 of Luke 10. We read, the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Even the demons submit to us in your name. 
Look at Jesus' response. Verses 18 through 20. Jesus replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Meaning, pride brought Lucifer down. Don't get so puffed up about your ministry. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, verse 20, however, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In other words, don't rejoice when you succeed in ministry, your career, or how popular you are as the highest thing. Rejoice in only one thing. Your names are written. You didn't write it. It was written. Eternity passed. Rest in that. John Piper tells us that uh, in his last conversation with Tim Keller, perhaps on day of his death, I'm not sure about that, but very close. This was the last conversation. He got an email from Tim. And in that email, Keller quoted this verse. John, this is my joy. He drew that from Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was another famous preacher a few years ago, British preacher, who said he clung to that as he was dying. I tell you, if you can cling to that when you're dying, only if you're clinging to that when you're living. Nothing in my hands do I cling, but though I hold simply to the cross, I cling. That's all. Our identity is bound up only in one thing. Sinner saved by grace. Everything else is just God's way of using us as he sees fit for however long he wants. Our identity is not bound up in being a husband, being a wife, being a pastor, being this, that or the other. Only in one thing. united with Jesus Christ. We rejoice in that reality alone and our lives show that. And if that's our life, then hopefully on the day of death we could say, I rejoice only in that Lord. Nothing else. Nothing else. This is what it means, folks, to be sufficient, to be content with having Jesus and Jesus alone. Nothing more needed. I tell you, as Tom Bissett says, that many in the church today have a paper-thin relationship with Jesus on the outside and hollow on the inside. It's a paper-thin relationship. That's why their faith collapses like a house of cards when the storms of life hits them. I didn't sign up for this. Turn their backs on Jesus. On the other hand, there are the few, the blessed minority, those with genuine faith, those who are genuinely born again, those who walk in the narrow path because they were enabled to enter through the narrow door, those who keep saying no to the glitz and glamour of this world, and those who keep on saying, even when they're hit by the storms of life, the words of Cory Ten Boom, Jesus is all I, all I need, even when Jesus is all I have. Jesus is all I need. Even when Jesus is all I have. 
let goods and kindred go this mortal life also the body they may kill god's truth abideth still and what is god's truth i hold you in my hand no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus not those who appear to be in christ jesus those who are really close to christ jesus those who are in christ jesus so warning number 1 beware of appearing to be close to jesus but in reality ending up being far from him if you are not truly united with jesus even now from where you are you can call out to jesus to save you and bring you into a genuine relationship with him he will do it and may i say he will do it very gladly because heaven rejoices when one sinner repents and instantaneously start a long drawn out process he will give you that new heart where you are where you are you can be born again that blood can be applied right that second you call upon the lord ask him to help you to call upon him so come don't delay even for a minute because what's at stake here is eternity warning number 2 it was a love for money that led to the betrayal of the holy son of god you know people often give many reasons why judas betrayed jesus disappointment disillusionment all kinds of different things perhaps they're all part of it but the bible clearly says this one main reason why he betrayed jesus was because he loved money john the gospel writer tells us so it's close to jesus's death about a week or so jesus has this is mary comes in john 12 he describes that mary comes and pours that perfume at jesus's feet wipes it with her hair and here's compassionate judas in verse 5 says oh this money could have been sold this perfume could have been sold and the money given to the poor but john writing almost 60 years after this incident tells us clearly it was not because he cared for the poor because he was a thief and was helping himself to the money see he was a treasurer he was helping himself and think about this folks he was with jesus which meant he lacked nothing still he wanted that extra dollar just one more dollar what a hypocrite he loved money and to him no amount was sufficient he didn't care how he got it as long as he got it again did he not hear jesus warning people about the dangers of money did he not hear jesus's parables which majority of them were talking about the dangers of wealth did he not hear absolutely he heard he may even preach that to people did he not prophesy in your name hey this is what jesus says but he never personally took them into his own heart even though mark tells us in mark 8:34 and luke tells us too what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul and jesus is called discipleship we know statement like this would have been repeated by jesus often and would not have jesus said this to judas again and again because jesus knew everything about judas he heard it but still did not pay attention to it you know why because 
thought, this does not apply to me. That's what a deceitful heart does. We can hear a sermon, says, I wish so-and-so would hear it. This applies to so-and-so. Now, this is a danger for every single one of us. Every single one of us, the danger of money is a clear and present danger. Judas didn't hear it. He thought somehow he's the exclusion to that command that Jesus, to that statement that Jesus said, you cannot serve both God and money. It doesn't somehow apply to me, Jesus. I'm okay. I'm okay. In the end, he ended up losing his soul for all eternity. Many like Judas in the church, they feel some conviction after hearing a sermon about the dangers of money. But as time goes on, they continue in their mad pursuit of gaining and holding to money. Assuming that I'm immune to this. The thought, the wrestling always revolves around money. We need to get more. It's not enough. What are we going to do? It's, it's, that, it's the deceitfulness of money that helps us to find some kind of security in it. Bottom line, they're not satisfied with Jesus alone. We're not talking about wisely taking care of our needs and planning. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is for such people, it's Jesus plus money or better said, money plus Jesus. So don't mind Jesus being there as long as the money keeps coming. That's their formula for living. And in the end, just as Judas ended up selling Jesus for the price of a common slave, people in this category will also end up selling Jesus for whatever price they can get. And just as Judas, even after he got the money, he felt remorse. They too will never feel satisfied. It's always that, as Rockefeller said, just one more dollar. As Henry Ford said, I was very much more happier when I was a mechanic. When we put our trust in money, that's exactly what's going to happen. No wonder the Apostle Paul rightly warns us by saying in 1 Timothy 6, verses 9 and 10, it says, those who want to get rich, those who want, this is their craving, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money. Again, in two verses, he says, want to get rich, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. We cannot afford to gloss over these words of warning from Paul. Money must never come between Jesus and us. Jesus will not, cannot, in keeping with his holy nature, tolerate any other loves that come between him and us. And the one thing that so easily can come is money. Does money have a grip on you? On me? If yes, then we must ask Jesus to break that grip. In a way, we must keep asking him to keep on breaking that 
grip because we're prone to leaning toward it. We need to plead with God to turn our eyes away from looking at worthless things and looking at Jesus as the treasure, only treasure, that pearl of great price that nothing comes between him and us. We need to plead with the Holy Spirit to help us to see the glories of Christ. Because unless that work is done from within, there's no hope for us. There's no hope for us. I repeat again, don't assume money is not a real threat. Danger, loving money is not a real threat. It is. It really is. Judas, despite being so close with Jesus, so intimate with him, ended up losing his soul for all eternity because deep inside his heart, instead of Jesus, money was his real God. He never lost his love for money. Never. To the very end. Imagine. The greatest act of evil, apart from the crucifixion, what led to that, this betrayal, was because of a love for money. Can we dare take this casually? Money led to the betrayal of the Son of God. And by one who lived with Jesus, it was an idol that Judas never got over. Oh, how many opportunities he had to ask Jesus, please help, please break this idol. Do you think Jesus would not have heard that request? Absolutely, he who washed the betrayer's feet would have gladly done that. Didn't. I tell you, money is such a, such a powerful God that sooner or later it will destroy its worshippers. Make no mistake. It will destroy its worshippers for all eternity. That is why we need God. We need His Spirit to help us escape the clutches of this false God. But the good news is this, what is impossible with man is possible with God. But we have to be humble and in faith take this warning seriously and keep pleading with God to help us. Like Mary who showed by her example that money would never come between Jesus and her. That's how we should behave. We should imitate Mary. Nothing. She did what she could. Mark 14 verse 8 says that. So we do what we can with what God's given to us but making sure that money never ever comes between God and us because if it comes we're only deceiving ourselves if we think my end will be different from Judas's end. I even give to ministry. Well Judas held the money purse so from that they were giving to ministry too. Remember that. Warning is clear. Beware of loving money. The same idol that led to the betrayal of the holy and awesome son of God. So two warnings. Two warnings Judas' tragic death teaches us. Warning number one. We can appear to be close to Jesus but end up being far from him for all eternity. Remember there's a vast difference between appearing to be close to Jesus and actually being united with Jesus. 
Warning number two, it was love for money that led to the betrayal of the Son of God. That idle money before Judas and since Judas has led many a soul to eternal darkness. Don't underestimate the power of money to enslave you. Money is a good slave, but a very wretched master. May the good and gracious Lord give us years to hear and hearts to yield to both these severe warnings so that we will end up, so we will not end up like how Judas ended up. Yes, Judas' death was a tragedy of all tragedies. But if we, after hearing so much truth, follow in Judas' footsteps, then our death will be the most tragic of all for us personally, losing our soul. Father, we pray that you alone can help us to be delivered from the deceitfulness of thinking we are attached to your son, but we are not. Your spirit alone can help us to not yield to the deceitfulness of wealth as your son described to us in Mark 4. Please, remove the veil that often clouds our eyes of judgment so that we can once again reaffirm our faith in you. And for those, Lord, where that veil has never been removed, please, would you open their eyes? Just as you open Lydia's heart on that riverbank in Philippi that day, open people's hearts so that they may come to you and be truly united to your Son as the Spirit works in their hearts and be born again. Please have mercy, O Lord. Let not these, let not these words that I spoke be empty words. Overrule all my mistakes and may your Spirit apply this deeply in all our hearts, starting with my own. We don't want to be in that camp of Matthew 7. Lord, Lord, I never knew you. Please have mercy. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.